The renowned author Mark Twain once said, there are two great days in a person's life, the day we are born and the day we discover why. One is easier than the other. One is a date in time. It's October 4th or March 29th or February 12th. It's a day that we celebrate every year as our birthday. It's the date we made our first public appearance on earth. That date is easy. The other one is not. The second is probably not a literal date at all because it's the moment we finally figure out why God put us along with seven or eight other million billion people on planet Earth. So back to Mark Twain. There are two great days in a person's life, the day we were born and the day we discover why. The first day explains our presence on this earth. The second explains our purpose on this earth. Presence and purpose. Often it takes a long time to discover why we were born and what our purpose is in life. On April 18th, 2013, Sean Collier was assigned to a certain intersection on the campus of Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston. Three days earlier, two bombs exploded near the finish line of the Boston Marathon. You may remember the story. Killing three people and injuring over 250 others. A massive manhunt put the whole city on virtual lockdown. By Thursday evening, the authorities had tracked the bombers to the area around the MIT campus. And police believe that sometime after 10 p.m., the bombers crept up on Sean Collier's patrol car, shooting him five times. He was pronounced dead by a nearby hospital. He was 27 years old. In a statement posted on the university website, MIT police chief uh, uh, John DeFavia said, uh, said, Sean is one of those guys who really looked at police work as a calling. He was born to be a police officer born to be a police officer. It's hard to imagine a finer tribute to a, uh, to a man who died in the la line of duty. We can think of many variations, though, we, can't we? She was born to be a mother. He was born to play baseball. She was born to be a teacher. He was born to be a soldier. She was born to be uh, a leader. He was born to help the homeless. What were you born to do? What were you born to do? That's a hard question. One that I hope you'll spend some time trying to answer. As a pastor, people ask me questions all the time, and a lot of them boil down to one simple theme. What is my purpose in life? What does God want me to do? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 promises that if we will trust in the Lord, he will make our way straight. So how exactly does he do that? Here are seven fundamental facts about God's guidance. One, he can put you exactly where he wants you to be. Two, he can arrange all the details of your life years in advance. Three, he can open doors for you that seem shut tight. Four, he can remove any obstacle in your way. 
5, he can take your choices and fit them into his plan so that you end up at the right place at just the right time. 6, he can even take your mistakes and bring good out of them. And 7, he can take your tragedy and use it for your good and for his glory. This is what Proverbs 16 9 means when it says we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. So let me ask you a critical question. Do you know why you were born? Sometimes we find our calling early in life. Often that revelation doesn't come until later in our life. Sometimes others see it before we do. And often the circumstances of life tend to reveal it to us. We're going to talk today about a man who fits this last category. He never knew what his purpose in life was for many years of his adult life. It was only after a series of events unfolded, nearly all of them outside of his control, and many of them quite painful, that the plan of God for his life became evident. This is the story of Joseph, son of Jacob, grandson of Isaac, great-grandson of Abraham. He was born to save his family. Genesis 37 introduces him this way. uh, So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. Now these verses tell us three facts about Joseph. He's 17 years old, he's working in the family business, and he doesn't have a clue about his own future. But life is kind of like that. If we said to Joseph, do you know why you were born? He probably would have no idea at this moment. He would no doubt think that he was destined to be a a shepherd, just like many in his family before him. But neither does he have any idea of the events that are about to unfold. Now this strikes me as a crucial point because when we read his story, thousands of years later, we know how it ends. And that colors our estimation of these early events. Sometimes I'm asked how to discover God's will, as I said, and the answer is we don't. We don't discover God's will. God's will discovers us. And we don't find it, it finds us if we're open to the Spirit of God. I heard someone say that God is, God's will is more like a sunrise than a sunburst. Out of the darkness and out of the chaos of life, God's will rises slowly over the horizon. It's not so much that we see the sun, it's that by the sun we see everything else. See, God has a blueprint for our life. God's will is revealed to us a little bit at a time, like the sun slowly rising or the blueprint slowly unrolling before our eyes. And so it was with Joseph. In short, he was Jacob's favorite son. He was betrayed, sold into slavery, purchased by Potiphar, a top official in the Egyptian government, and became a respected leader. And then he was falsely accused of improper conduct by Potter's wife, uh, Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison where he met the baker and the butler. And later he stands before Pharaoh 
and through God's blessing became the prime minister of Egypt. That's the story in a nutshell. And during a famine back in Israel, his brothers come to Egypt looking for food and shelter, and Joseph provides a home for them. And all of that ended up saving his family, but more than that, preserving the line of promise that would one day bring us to Jesus. If I just went too fast for you, hang on. We're going to unravel all of those events um, a little bit at a time as we go along. Today we are at the front end of this amazing story. Now just remember that when we meet Joseph, he's tending some flocks of sheep. and He doesn't have a clue about the roller coaster ride that is about to become his life. But before we go any further, I want to back up a bit. I want to remind us of his family history. There is a 21st century word that perfectly describes his family. It's a word that you won't find anywhere in the book of Genesis, but it fits nonetheless. It's a word that can be used in the life of Jacob, who was Joseph's father as well. Joseph grew up in a seriously dysfunctional family. His father Jacob had four wives. He had 11 brothers scattered among those four wives, and he had one full brother, a youngest child of all, whose name was, anybody remember? You didn't read your homework, did you, for this uh, lesson? Benjamin, okay, remember that? Benjamin was the youngest. With all of that, there was bound to be trouble, and there was. Genesis 37, verse 3, says that Joseph was his father's favorite son, and the son of his old age. That means he, he was the first son by the wife Rachel, the woman Jacob always loved best. Joseph was the favorite, and all the brothers knew it. But Jacob's family was a disaster waiting to happen. There uh, was one father, four mothers, 12 brothers, plus one daughter, Dinah, and one favorite son in the mix. Trouble is brewing under the surface in Jacob's complicated family. Now out of this chaotic family will come Joseph, who many years down the road will rescue the brothers who betrayed him. As the story opens, there's no reason, none at all, to see any of this in advance. At the beginning, we mostly see dark clouds on the horizon. And from this, we learn an important our background is no impediment to our service for the Lord. Joseph came from a family that in many ways was totally out of bounds. It certainly was not a neat, clean, one man, one woman, nuclear family. He was born into a family where jealousy and comparison and distrust were the rules of the game. It was not a happy family. And yet God chose Joseph and used him mightily. Now, not many of us come from perfect families either, do we? Actually, none of us do because there is no such thing. See if you know who said this. Here's a quote. At the end of the day, who everybody meets in the public eye, the public image, and myself are two different people in a way. It's a very accessible, accessible version of me. I'm definitely more introverted. I'm definitely darker I'm definitely more at times pessimistic in real life. I shouldn't say pessimistic. There's a little str that's a little strong. I'm more pragmatic in real life because I am 
come from a whole different body of experience. Now those words you may not recognize, but they were words of Corey Monty, star of a one-time TV hit show, Glee, who, 31 years old, died in his hotel room in Vancouver of an overdose of alcohol and heroin, July 13, 2013. In a 2011 interview with Parade Magazine, he talked about his past experiences with drugs, and then he made this conclusion. He said, I don't, I don't want kids to think it's okay to drop out of school and get high, and they'll be famous actors too. I'm lucky on so many counts. I'm lucky to be alive. But today he's gone. The Bible has a lot to say about this. James 4.14 says, How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. Psalm 90.12, Teach us to, the, the, to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Mark 8.36, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? See, the real problems that we face are not somewhere out there. They are always here on the inside. That's where we fight our greatest battles in life. Our real problems are right here. More than two decades before he died, Michael Jackson sang these lyrics. He said, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. There's wisdom here and a lesson that we all need to learn. This world is a messed up place and the most messed up part of it lies inside the human heart. There's one reason we know the Bible is true. It speaks the truth about the human condition. It doesn't lie to us about our unlimited potential or tell us that we're basically okay the way we are at the moment. It says that we are all sinners, separated from God, dead in our sins, spiritually blind, unable to help ourselves, and this is where the gospel becomes so incredibly relevant. It doesn't make us feel good and then say, hey, just try harder and you'll be okay. We often hear quoted the familiar words of Romans 3.23, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And most of us would agree with that, but if, we're to ask about, if, if I were to ask about the last phrase of verse 22, we might not be so quick to nod our approval. Because verse 22 is the key to verse 23. Verse 22 said we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. It doesn't matter if we're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if we're religious or a pagan. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. No difference between young and old. No difference between a housewife and a, and a woman on the street. No difference between a criminal or an altar boy. No difference between an American or African or Asian. We're all in the same boat. And unless God does something, we're all going to sink together. We're all broken people. Some of us know it. Some of us don't. And if you can relate 
to that. The story of Joseph is a story for you. It can come from, if you come from a broken home, this story's for you. If you don't get along with your brothers or sisters, or if you were abused growing up, this story is for you. If your friends lied to you or you've done jail time, this story's for you. If your family doesn't understand you or if your friends have betrayed you, this story is for you. Leo Tolstoy began his epic novel, uh, novel Anna Karenina, with this first sentence. He said, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And this is true of Joseph and his brothers. They are one unhappy family, and they have their own way of showing it. So how did God's will unfold? Well, at the beginning of Genesis 37, Joseph is tending the flocks with his brothers in Canaan. By the end of the chapter, he's a slave in Egypt. And his life has taken what appears to be a massive turn in the wrong direction. But God has other plans for Joseph, plans that require him to be in Egypt. And so how does a 17-year-old Hebrew shepherd become the prime minister of Egypt? Well, here are some steps along that journey. First, Joseph stood for different values. His brothers were the sons of two, two of his father's other wives, and verse 2 tells us that Joseph brought a bad report of them to their, fa to their father. And no doubt Jacob knew that some of his sons weren't exactly men of character. Joseph simply reported to his father what he saw, what he heard. Second of all, he was singled out as special at an early age. Verse 3 says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Now this is the part of the story almost everybody knows. The phrase, robe of many colors, right? Translates a little bit different in Hebrew. If it, it at least means that the coat was richly embroidered most likely with long sleeves, the sort of robe that royalty might wear. We may debate among ourselves about the wisdom of Jacob's gift to his favorite son, but perhaps we should not have, he should not have made his feelings so obvious, but nothing in the text suggests that he did it wrongly. By wearing the robe, Joseph signaled to his brothers that he was destined for greatness in his father's eyes. If the robe had long sleeves and many couldn't work in the fields the same way his brothers did, thus increasing their animosity toward him. But then third, Joseph had two strange dreams. In his dream, verses 5 through 8, he, he and his brothers were gathering bundles of wheat in the field. And when his bundles stood up, the other bundles all bowed down before it. Not too hard to figure out. That one, needless to say, it didn't make his brothers very happy with him. The second dream was even more grandiose. Verse 9, soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I have had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed down low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, and, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to you on the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. 
At first, his father rebuked him. Later, he begins to ponder what all of this meant. Then fourth, his brothers hated him more and more every day. The text mentions four times that his brothers hated him or were jealous of him. No wonder they couldn't speak kindly to him. Soon their anger and their envy will lead to shocking betrayal. Now this account is both sad, but also instructive. One of the key learnings for me is that often those closest to us will not recognize God's call upon our lives. Not everyone will applaud your decision to follow Jesus. Some might even oppose you openly. Others may criticize you behind your back. In Joseph's case, his brothers are about to commit a heinous crime. They will conspire to kill their own flesh and blood, all because of envy. Hebrews 12.15 warns us uh, to see uh, that no root of bitterness ever springs up and causes trouble in us. And that is precisely what happens here. Centuries later, Solomon would write these words, a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like cancer in the bones. These sad words are about to come true. Jealousy will not only cause trouble, it's going to nearly destroy this family. But fifth, his brothers betrayed him. And now events begin to unfold more swiftly. The brothers conspire to kill him. When they see him coming, they mockingly say, hey, here comes the dreamer. They plan to kill him and throw him into one of the nearby cisterns and then tell their father that a wild animal has eaten him. Instead, on the advice of one of the brothers, Reuben, they end up throwing him alive into the empty cistern, hoping that he will die and they won't have to lay a hand on him. And then comes the most callous act of all. They sat down and they ate lunch. While Joseph is screaming in the pit for help. And we wonder what sort of people could do this. Well, along with some desert, uh, came some desert traders at just the right moment. So Judah comes up with a clever plan that will make some money off their brother's distress. Verse 26 and 27. What will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to these Ishmaelite traders. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers all agreed. So the deal was done. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. And if that reminds you of someone else, later in the the biblical story, who was sold for 30 pieces of silver. It should. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And Judas was a distant descendant of his brother Judah, who sold his brother Joseph into slavery. What will they say to their father when Joseph does not come home with them that day? Taking the coat of many colors, they dipped it in some goat's blood and told their father that a wild animal had killed Joseph. It was a bold-faced lie. Joseph, or Jacob believed it, of course, and Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt, and he's sold to a man by the name of Potiphar. 
And for a moment, let's stand back and take a look at Genesis 37. What a sordid story this is. What a messed up story. And we, we may ask, where's God in all of this? But you know what? God is not even mentioned in Genesis chapter 37. His name is nowhere to be found in that chapter. Does it mean that God had abandoned Joseph to his brother's evil schemes? Well, not at all. Though everything seems to be spinning out of control at every point, Joseph is exactly where God wants him to be. In the field with his brothers, reporting to his father, telling his dreams, looking for his brothers, thrown into the pit, sold as a slave, marched off to Egypt, that while all of this chain of events must have seemed dark and chaotic to Joseph, it was all leading exactly to where God intended it to go from the very beginning. Let me wrap up this message with two life lessons. First, when God chooses a leader, he often allows enemies to arise who will put that leader to the test. Where did Joseph's enemies come from? His worst enemies came from the people who should have been closest to him, right? His own flesh and blood. And what started as hatred turned to envy, which resulted in conspiracy, which led to violence, which was compounded by callous indifference, which ended up in shocking betrayal, which was covered up by evil deception. Jesus warned us that a person's enemies will often be those of our own household or people we're close friends with. Don't be surprised when people you thought you could trust turn against you. It doesn't always happen, but when it does, the results are devastating. Secondly, when God chooses a leader, not even his enemies can stop that leader from doing God's will. This is the other side of the story. Nothing the brothers did could cancel God's choice. Behind Jacob's favoritism and behind these strange dreams and behind the brothers' evil schemes stood the God of the universe who was working out his will. And not even the trajectory of envious brothers could thwart God's plan. Years later, Joseph would say, you meant it for evil against me. And that was no exaggeration. They first meant to kill him and only spared his life because they saw a way to make money off of it. It was evil through and through. Didn't God know about the betrayal? Didn't God know about the slavery? Didn't God know about Potiphar's wife? Didn't God know about the false accusations? Didn't God know about the prison time that was coming? God knew all of those things and a whole lot of other stuff in Besides, but Joseph was God's choice, and therefore God led him through the pain of betrayal. It had to happen that way. At the beginning of Genesis 37, Joseph is tending the flocks with his brothers who already hate him. By the end of Genesis 37, he is a slave in Egypt. Is he better off or is he worse off? Well, it depends on your point of view. It depends on how big our God is. And that brings us back to the words of Mark Twain that I started with. There are two great days in a person's life, the day we were born and the day we discover why. It took a long time for Joseph to eventually discover why he was born. But he's not there yet. 
you know why you were born? Perhaps the right answer should be, I was born to serve the Lord. Everything else is just detail. Seen in that light, the real hero of Joseph's story is really not Joseph, is it? It's God. The whole story illustrates how God accomplishes purposes for us even when we're clueless about the big picture. And that comforts me because I rarely feel like I see the big picture of my life or what my life is supposed to mean. And what little do I, I do understand happens as I look back and see how all the pieces were fitting together. Every day, even today, I have no special knowledge about what tomorrow is going to bring or the day after that, much less the next five years. I do believe, though, that God has a blueprint for my life. I also believe I don't have access to that blueprint. I will only see that blueprint as it unfolds before me a little bit at a time as I walk by faith. You see, we need a big God. We have one. The God of Joseph is our God too. So the hero rises out of the turmoil of a dysfunctional family. Joseph proves that you and I can come from crazy, mixed up families and still do amazing things for a big God. So stay tuned. There's more to come. You won't believe what happens when Joseph gets to Egypt next week. Pray with me. Holy God, prod us to look at ourselves honestly today, to see the truth of our lives, and then grant us the power to move beyond being self-absorbed to the purpose that you have in mind for us. Show us a vision of that which we were born to do. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray.